Hi everyone, it's Ken. Before we start, I want to share some exciting news. We've paired with Midas Touch, so you can now watch these interviews on YouTube. Just search for the Midas Touch YouTube channel or click the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the episode. One night I was cooking dinner and he said, is God real? And I said, well, what do you think, buddy? And he said that, um, he said, I think that for real God is pretend and for pretend God is real. And I, I was just stunned by that. It was such a, like a complicated thought. And I said, what, what do you mean? And he said, I think that God isn't real, but when we pretend he is. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Scott Hershvitz, a professor of law and philosophy at the University of Michigan and former law clerk to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Scott's new book, Nasty, Brutish, and Short, is a, quote, romp through contemporary philosophy led by his two young sons as they discuss ancient arguments and ask their own questions, end quote. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. So I took philosophy in college, and it never stuck for me because I couldn't really apply it to my daily life. You make an enormous effort, not just in this book, but in your other work, to make philosophy real and practical. As an academic, uh, that's not required. So where does that impulse come from? I think it partly comes from the fact that I teach philosophy to lawyers. So, you know, I'm on the faculty in the law school and the philosophy department here, but my primary teaching home is in the law school. And so uh, the philosophical questions that interest me are the ones that arise like in courtrooms, right? So um, what does it mean to be responsible for an injury that you inflicted on somebody else? How should we respond to the wrongs that we commit? Kind of those are the the questions that I ask in my own writing. And then I love talking to my law students, most of whom are not philosophers, maybe never encountered philosophy, maybe encountered it and had the reaction you did, and using these stories of real people's lives to help these philosophical questions come alive. I will say that as, as unattractive as the study of philosophy was to me in college, it clicked at Yale Law School. We were, I was there right after you were and we didn't overlap, but it was learning philosophy and its relation to the law that changed something for me. And I'm going to ask you about the trolley car experiment. And if you're just sick to death of sharing that with a lay audience, let me know and I'll just put a, a link to it in the show notes. But if that's something you don't mind relating again, because it was my yeah. introduction to like philosophy applied in the real world and and how it can change how we we think about decisions boil that down to its essence for us yeah well i actually love to talk about the trolley problem increasingly people have heard of it because it's like broken through into pop culture it featured in an episode of the good place but i think a lot of people actually they don't get quite what the trolley problem is or what the problem part of it is so it takes two stories to get the trolley problem going the first story lots of people know now there's an out of control trolley it's heading down the track it's going to run over five workers, but you just happen to be standing near a switch. And if you pull that switch, then you can divert the trolley onto a different track. That's good news. The bad news is there's one worker on that piece of track. And then you ask people, what would you do if you found yourself in this situation? Let the trolley keep growing and kill the five or pull the switch and kill the one. And let's pause there. What would you say, Ken? Uh, I would 
pull the switch. Yeah, and most people say they would pull the switch. Not everyone, but most people say they'd pull the switch in that circumstance. So now you want to compare that that case right, um, to a different one. The standard comparison case runs like this. Um, same start. There's an out-of-control trolley. It's heading down a track. It's going to hit five workers. But this time, you're not standing near a switch. You're standing on top of a bridge. You're looking over the scene. And right next to you, there's a very heavy man who's leaning up against the rail on this bridge. And you realize, if I push this man over the bridge, he'll land on the track and his heft will stop the trolley. And that will save the other five workers, but it will kill him. And then the question again is, what would you do in this circumstance? Yeah, probably not in this circumstance. Probably not. Yeah. And again, oh, pretty overwhelmingly, people say they wouldn't push the heavy man over the bridge. And it's the juxtaposition to the answers that we're inclined to give in those cases that is the trolley problem. So the math seems the same. The question is, would you kill one person to save the lives of five people? And it seems like even though the math is the same across these cases, we give different answers. And actually, I'll give you one more case just to make it feel maybe even more real, right? Like the original comparison case was something philosophers call transplant, right? So like you work you work in an emergency room and you've got, like it's a rough night here. You've got five, five patients. They're all on the verge of death. They need organ transplants. They all need different organs. And then someone relatively healthy comes into the emergency room. Maybe they've broken their pinky finger. And you think to yourself, wow, if I kill this person, then I could harvest their organs very quickly and save the other five people that are here. And nearly no one, I've never met anyone who says that they would kill the person with the broken finger. Um, so the trolley problem is an effort to figure out what accounts for our different um, decisions in these cases. Why would we sometimes be willing to kill one person to save others and other times not? You focus a lot of your thinking on the dignity of human beings. Where the trolley uh, problem got really interesting for me in law school was when the question was posed, well, what if the five workers were convicted death row inmates? Or mm -hmm. what if, you know, the individual on the other track was an infant or something like that? Uh, that comparison of relative human dignity uh, really forces some soul searching. Uh, do you do you get into that in your classes as well? So I, you know, I've taught a class on the trolley problem. I've taught a version at the law school, and actually taught a version that met in the evenings at my house, so my uh, kids could participate. They took their train sets and they set up the trolley problem, the original version, and then as people would suggest, different. Uh, iterations, they would adjust the train set. And actually, part of what was amusing is the action figures they were using were, uh, some of them were stormtroopers, uh, which I feel like raises, like stormtroopers from Star Wars, I feel like raises, you know, your, your version of one of these questions. Maybe, maybe the people on this track aren't so great. The people on that track are innocent like that infant. Um, you know, the, the trolley problem can become uh, super arcane, very quickly or like, you know, because you can spin out so many different versions of the story and you can have different iterations of the people that are on the track. And a lot of people think that this is kind of pointless and they find it frustrating for that reason. And I don't think it's pointless at all, actually. There's some hint that, you know, future versions of autonomous cars may have to make decisions like this. I don't think we're anywhere near that technology yet, but they may have to decide, are they turning onto the sidewalk where there's um, you know, a baby in a stroller, or are they hitting, you know, the three grownups that are in the, that are in the crosswalk? 
Um, so some people are interested in the trolley problem for that reason. They think there's a kind of practical set of questions coming. Autonomous vehicles are going to have to make these choices. I'm actually interested in it for a different reason, right? The question, when is it okay to kill some people to save others, is actually a question that's pervasive in our moral lives. So it's, in some kinds of instances, a question that arises in the context of abortion. And actually, the very first appearance of the trolley problem in philosophy was in an article by a British philosopher named Philip Afoot, who was thinking about abortion, right? So some abortions involve the decision to kill a fetus to save the life of the mother. But also trolley problem-like cases commonly arise in war, right? So, you know, like a famous example runs like this. There was a period of time during World War II where the Germans were attempting to bomb central London, but their targeting was off. They were bombing south London. And this was protecting some of the buildings um, that were central to the war effort, like the buildings where the like leadership of the military were doing its work. And they made a deliberate decision to um, keep their radio chatter down, to pretend that they were taking fire right um, in central London, even though the actual um, bombs were exploding in South London. And so they were making a decision right, to allow some people to die as a means towards saving others. And so the point of the trolley problem is really not to figure out what would you do if a trolley problem was out of control. It's that we frequently confront these questions of, is it okay to allow some people to die or even to kill some people as a means of saving others. And that's really what the trolley problem is trying to help us understand. I think that's right. And I think the reason it spoke to me so loudly in law school is because I had just come off nine years as a Navy pilot and never been challenged to think philosophically in that way. Uh, What do you make of the the loss of philosophical thinking and philosophical training in not just liberal arts educations, but in, in, in high schools and in the things that, that feed the professions? So I think that philosophy should be a regular part of education. And, and part of the reason I wrote Nasty, Brutish, and Short is I actually think it should start even long before high school, that like the book is a plea to see that little kids wrestle with philosophical questions all the time. They notice philosophical puzzles, they challenge things that adults take for granted, and they're up for and capable of really deep and interesting conversations in elementary school, in high school, in college, and beyond. And I think philosophy has got a bad rap in our society. You know, I turned on, uh, I turned on my phone this morning and, you know, there's like all the controversy today about the loan cancellation and, and Jim Jordan, the congressman from Ohio, tweeted, why should a machinist in Ohio pay for the jobless philosophy majors uh, in Los Angeles? Why should they pay for his loans? And actually, I want to say two things about that. One is very few philosophy majors are jobless. In fact, like it's a, it's a major, it's a discipline that teaches you to think carefully. And that's extraordinarily useful in a wide range of activities. And if you like actually look at the, the salaries and the job outcomes of philosophers, they do extraordinarily well, and not just when they go to law school. Uh, so there aren't many jobless philosophy majors. Um, but uh, 
The second thing I want to say is like, I, I think that you can actually make an instrumental case for doing philosophy along those lines. But I also just think it's an important human activity, right? That the world is a puzzling place and we are puzzling creatures. And just being able to stop and to think and to notice that and to reason through problems carefully is a skill that I think everyone needs. And it's the skill that philosophy hones in a way that very few activities do. And so I think it's great that you encountered philosophy at Yale Law School. I think it'd be terrific, actually, if uh, if Navy pilots were encouraged to think about these uh, these conversations before their service, not just afterwards. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, <clears throat> I want to talk about the book because I loved it. I've dog-eared the heck out of it. Um, but I'm wondering, before we launch into it. Are you, have you had any second thoughts about uh, the title, Nasty, Brutish, and Short, which is obviously a reference to both your kids and Hobbes, who you're not exactly a, a devotee of? Yeah. So there's this, this famous phrase from Thomas Hobbes, who's wondering what the what the world would be like if there were no government at all. And he thinks it would be terrible. He thinks it would resolve like a war of every man against every man. And he says that life in what he called the state of nature would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And as I say in the book, I'm not sure about like Hobbes's claim that that's what life without government would have been like. But I I am confident that nasty, brutish, and short is an apt description of of most little kids, um, you know. And as I hasten to say in the book, my kids just my kids they're not just nasty, brutish, and short. They're also really cute and kind, and we're un, we're uncommonly lucky on that score. They're um, astoundingly cute and kind sometimes, but you know they endorse and embrace the uh, the the description at least in part. You know, I asked Hank once. I said, "Are you nasty and brutish?" And he said, I can be nasty, but I'm not British. Uh, so, you know, the title of the book is, I think, mostly just representative of the kind of irreverent attitude that uh, I've got sort of some questions in philosophy and uh, and a little bit towards parenting and my kids. And I, I wanted to signal to people right out of the gate, this is going to be fun and funny and not uh, and not dry and boring. It's the observations your kids and other kids make that, I mean, really set this book apart. There were some that literally made my jaw drop. I had uh, a few hours in the car, so I was listening to part of it. And you relate this one story that I shared with my wife. I actually called her up and it, it blew her away too. I believe from Gareth Matthews, is is he one of the philosophers you're, you're referencing yeah. in the world? So he talks about a sleepover or something like that where, well, you probably know which one I'm getting at. Do you want to relay the story yeah, about- this is a little yeah. boy named Ian. It, that's it, that's yeah, the one. Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite stories of a kid asking a question. So Ian's family has another family over. I think they had them over for dinner. And afterwards, the kids watched TV and there were three kids in the other family and just Ian and his. And so they watched the show that the other kids want to watch. And it means that Ian misses his favorite- TV show. And afterwards, after the other family's gone home, Ian says to his mother, why is it better for three people to be selfish than for one person to be selfish? And I just love that question. It's such a great illustration is one of the reasons I love it of what I'm trying to get people to see that kids challenge things that grownups take for granted. So in a lot of situations, we just think, oh, we're having a conflict about what to do. What are the, what's the majority of people around here want to do? That seems like a common method that we use to decide questions, and it seems like an obvious thing to do. And Ian is saying, wait a minute, it's not obvious, right? If each of us are just own vote, voting our own selfish interest, 
Why does the fact that there are more of you count for more? In that way, it's an interesting challenge to democracy, right? Um, if we just walk into the voting booth and we're, we're selfish, is that a good way of making decisions? Ian suggesting that it's not. And I think I kind of agree with him, actually. I don't think we should be selfish when we cast our votes. He's also challenging a method of thinking that you and I learned a lot about in law school, right? This economic way of thinking that suggests we should try and maximize the satisfaction of people's preferences, right? Ian's saying, wait a minute, if people's preferences are just selfish, why is why is the fact that there are three of you count for the fact that there's just more than there's just one of me? And his mother was totally flummoxed by this question. She didn't know how to answer, and she just kind of brushed it off. And I think most adults would have, but I think it's actually be super cool to sit down with Ian and ask him, what do you think would be a fair way to make a decision in these circumstances and reason with him together about you know, what's the right way to resolve these kinds of conflicts? Are there areas of your philosophy in which your kids' ideas and observations have fundamentally changed your own? Absolutely. The, the best example in the book, I think, comes in the last chapter, uh, which is about God. And uh, my son, when he was four years old, he went to the Jewish Community Center preschool. And so he would learn about God, and he'd learn about various aspects of the Jewish religion. He had a lot of questions, and he would frequently ask if God was real. And one night I was cooking dinner, and he said, is God real? And I said, well, what do you think, buddy? And he said, that, um, he said, I think that for real, God is pretend, and for pretend, God is real. And I, I was just stunned by that. It was such a, like a complicated thought. And I said, what, what do you mean? And he said, I think that God isn't real, but when we pretend he is. And I've been thinking about that ever since he said it. I think it's been like eight years now. And it really helped me understand myself in a deeper way because I don't think of myself as a religious believer. I don't think that, um, I don't. I wouldn't say that I think that God is real and that the stories in the Bible happen just the way they're told. Nevertheless, I participate in lots of religious rituals. I observe Jewish holidays. I fast on Yom Kippur. I keep Passover. I go to synagogue and participate in lots of the life events. Um, Rex, my older son who said this, is bar mitzvah is coming up soon, and he's studying hard for it. And I've often wondered, why is it that I do these things? And why are they important to me if I don't believe in God? And Rex helped me understand that, right? He helped me see that God may not be real, but when we pretend he can be. And I realized that in the same way that pretend play enriches kids' lives, pretending can enrich adults' lives. That um, by pretending in these rituals, um, it connects me to a community and gives me ways of marking important events in our lives. And you know, I appreciate the peacefulness and the opportunity and reflection that comes with many of these rituals. And so I came to see through Rex what I'm doing is a kind of pretend and, and to understand the way that pretend enriches my life. But you have interrogated those rituals and traditions and rationalized your participation in them because of the value that bounces back. I'm wondering if there are, if there are values you hold, if there are things that you just choose to believe in as articles of faith. There's no rationale from them, but... Yeah, that's so... Part of this God chapter is about thinking about the difference, uh, about, about thinking about what faith is. And actually, my favorite explanation of what faith is comes from a philosopher who teaches at Berkeley. Her name is Laura Bouchak. And um, she says that, um, you know, when you... She says that first, that faith is more about action than belief, right? That when you have faith, 
you're choosing to act as if something is true, even if your evidence doesn't adequately ground the belief that it is. She offers this example, which I think is really nice. Like if, if you and I have, say, a friend in common and, and you think she's not telling the truth about something and you come to me and you say, look, I think she's lying, I might say, I have faith in her, right? And Bouchek says, I'm not saying that I think that your evidence is bad or I think that I have counter evidence. I think that I'm saying I'm going to act as if she's telling the truth, I'm going to take a chance on her, right? And I think that's a really helpful way of understanding what faith in God is like, because a lot of religious believers don't take themselves to have adequate evidence to show that God exists. They recognize that the evidence isn't so great, right? It's consistent with lots of different hypotheses. But they nevertheless have decided to act as if God um, exists and to orient their life um, around that. And I admire that immensely. Um, I think that uh, that religious believers, people that have faith, do an awful lot of good in the world. They do an awful lot of good in the world because of the way they choose to orient themselves, right? I then say that though I admire it, it's not something that I find that I can do, in part because I feel like I've adopted the different orientation in the world. Like I've adopted the orientation of the philosopher, right? The person who has doubts and doubts their doubts and has questions and is constantly searching for truth. And I feel like these are maybe not incompatible, but like ways of being in the world that are somewhat in tension. So I don't um, begrudge anyone their faith. In fact, I often, um, especially when it's, you know, faith that leads to good acts in the world, I admire it immensely, but it's not something that, uh, that I take on myself. But there are articles of faith that don't necessarily attach conceptions of divinity, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the idea of yeah. love existing or cruelty being being wrong. I'm wondering, have you ever, for example, doubted your love of your children? Or are there things that you just accept because that's how you want to live your life? Yeah. So I do think that I have, I have faith in many things, right? Which is to say, um, just thinking of love, I think is a really great instance. A lot of people have have doubts, like say on the precipice of marriage. And it's totally rational to have doubts because if you look around the world, you, you see that um, a substantial chunk, maybe even most uh, marriages fail, right? So if you were assessing your evidence, right, um, you ought to say, oh, look, there's like a, there's like a good chance this relationship's not going to work out. And, uh, but nevertheless, Right, like having having faith in the relationship, having faith in the other person, I think it, it opens up possibilities um, that aren't available to you if you are going to assess everything rationally and just consider your evidence. Um, so I think sometimes, like uh, you know, Kierkegaard talked about in the religious context, taking a leap of faith, and I definitely think I've taken that leap in respect of lots of relationships of my life. Right, like I'm not going to assess the evidence. I'm not going to worry about what it is going to have faith in this person and our connection. And I think that makes possible a kind of uh, long-term commitment that just wouldn't be available to you um, if you weren't willing to take that leap. This is Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio versus the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you. 
as Ohio vs. the World makes history fun again. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. You have this quote in a recent interview. I'm going to read it back to you uh, and then want to apply it to to something else you wrote. Uh, you said, a lot of philosophers are watching the world burn around them, and they're asking, what do the tools they have offer the world? Uh, that gets back to the, the practical application of philosophy, which you made real with your op-ed about Taylor Swift's refusal to forgive Kanye West, can you talk about the philosophy of forgiveness? Because sure. I heard a lot about that op-ed when it came out, and it, it forced me to have some conversations as well. Yeah, so uh, Taylor Swift gave this interview a couple years ago, and I can't remember who, the, who was interviewing her, but they asked her about forgiveness. And she said, a lot of people say that you have to forgive um, in order to move on with your life. And she said, I don't think that's right. She said, I think forgiveness is something that you do when people have earned forgiveness. But not everybody earns forgiveness. They don't always acknowledge their wrongdoing. She said, um, you know, you don't have to forgive to move on. Sometimes you just become indifferent and then you move on. I thought this was super insightful. And it actually connected with a tradition in philosophy that's, you know, hundreds of years old. So let's just like think about what forgiveness is for a moment. Um, the leading thinker about forgiveness was this theologian, a Christian theologian named Bishop Butler, who said that uh, that resentment, uh, or actually he, just, he described forgiveness as the release of resentment, right? Um, so you resent somebody who's wronged you, and when you forgive them, you release your resentment. Um, but almost immediately, people started to realize, well, wait a minute, sometimes I release my resentment because you apologized, and that gives me reasons no longer to be angry with you or as angry with you as I once was. But sometimes, as Taylor Swift is suggesting, um, you release your resentment for different reasons, right? It's not that you've done anything which shows that you merit forgiveness. It's that resentment can kind of eat at me, and I don't want to be consumed by this anymore, right? So Swift is saying, hey, look, sometimes I just have to say, this is not good for me, right? So I'm going to let this go. I'm going to become indifferent, and I'm going to move on with my life, even though I still think you wronged me, Maybe I still think you deserve you deserve resentment. I'm just not going to hold it anymore because it's not good for me. I think that's super insightful. And I think it's an invitation to think about both the circumstances in which resentment is warranted and then also the circumstances in which we should be willing to, to let it go. And actually, this is an illustration of something we were talking about earlier. I think that philosophy, like philosophical questions, they're present pervasively right, in our lives. We've all been wronged right? Sometimes we've been apologized to, sometimes we've not been apologized to. We have to decide how we're going to move on with our lives, whether we're going to demand forgiveness, whether we're going to wait for it, or whether we're just going to get going with things um, and try and forget about uh, the experience that we had. 
And, and I think we all wrestle with it. You know, the title of that article um, when it ran in the New York Times was Taylor Swift Philosopher of Forgiveness. And I think like having that set of thoughts, she absolutely earned, uh, earned that title. And I think there was a lot of wisdom in what she said. Did you ever hear from her? You know, I didn't. I think there's a level of fame, right, that you can reach where people write articles about you in the New York Times. And it may not, I, I always wondered, like, did it even cross her horizon? I kind of hope that somebody clipped it for her and said, hey, this is cool. But I don't even, I don't even know if that happened. So if you're listening and you know Taylor Swift, uh, you know, please make sure that she sees this essay. Uh, you know, I think what she had to say was, was super smart. On Twitter, I, I invited her to my class. I mean, if she does hear about this and she wants to talk more about forgiveness, she is always welcome in my class at Michigan. Have you ever tried to apply that philosophy of forgiveness to our current political context? Because I think a lot about the need for reconciliation, which, you know, oftentimes there are things that have to precede that. But how do we accommodate tens of millions of, of Americans who have voted for a vision of this country totally unrepentantly that excludes millions of their, their neighbors. Going into this upcoming 22 election and, you know, the existential election in 24, is, is forgiveness even possible without atonement? Yeah, so, um, so let's back up a little bit. The, one of my favorite philosophers, um, Contemporary philosophers is a woman named Pamela Hieronymi who teaches at UCLA. She was a consultant for The Good Place, uh, even as a cameo appearance in the last episode, wrote this really interesting article called Articulating Uncom an Uncompromising Forgiveness. And what she said is that we should understand resentment in her view as a kind of protest. She said, when, when you're wronged by someone, right? Like that wrongdoing sends a message. The message varies by the wrongdoing. Sometimes it says, hey, I'm up high here. I'm here up high and you're there down low. Sometimes it says I can use you for my purposes or I matter and you don't, right? We're all familiar with feeling like that when somebody treats us badly, right? And so she says resentment is actually a kind of self-protective emotion. It's a way of protesting that treatment. And that's why it's actually good sometimes to feel resentment. If somebody's taking abuse and they, they just take it, they come to think that they deserve it, Right, this is a bad situation to be in. So she says, like, in the first instance, feeling resentful when somebody wrongs you, that's actually a good thing. That's self-protective, right? And then the question is, how can you get past the resentment? Well, well, Swift is saying you could just become indifferent and move on. And I think sometimes that's what we have to do, right? But Hieronymy says, look, there's a variety of things that could happen, which could abate the threat that those bad messages about you posed, right? So like the, the most desirable thing would be for the person who wronged you to apologize, for them to say, hey, I see that I mistreated you. I don't think of you that way, right? And then you could forgive them because they're, not, they're no longer threatening once they acknowledge the wrongdoing and say they won't do it again, right? So, um, so that's one thing that could happen. But she says there's other things that could happen that could help you respond to that threat and feel comfortable living in the world one of them is, right, there could be some communal response. So that person could be, say, punished for what they've done, or they could be ordered to pay you compensation for what they've done. That's a way of your community coming together, often through the legal system and saying, hey, we don't think it was okay for you to be treated that way, right? And we're going to make this person take some corrective action, right? So when I think about like our political system writ large, right, and say, what's going on right now with the various investigations of Donald Trump, his 
um, his interference with the election or his, like now, the mishandling of classified material. I do think it's important sometimes that we find ways of marking wrongdoing and say, hey, like, actually, we don't, we're not going to turn turn the other cheek here. Not yet, <laughs> right? We're going to, it's important to say, it's not okay for you to treat our political system this way. It's not okay for you to treat our secrets this way. It's not okay for you to treat us more generally, right? Democratic electric electorate as if our votes don't matter. I think it's actually really important right now that we find ways to communicate that message and to make it meaningful and for there to be accountability for especially the people who tried um, to disrupt and overturn the results of the election, the people involved in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Um, but your initial question, I think, like also invites us to think about our future, right? And a world in which we only have accountability is probably a world in which we're not going to manage to live together uh, or not live together well. And so I actually, I'll recommend another book. Um, An old friend of mine who is the founder of a group called Interfaith America named Ibu Patel just published a book called We Need to Build. And the idea in the book is if you look around our society and you don't like the way things are going, right? Um, that you need to think not just about criticizing the way things are going, but about building solutions um, on small scales, on big scales, right? Like ask, how can I help build the institutions that we want to have? And um, and I think that's a super constructive set of thoughts because I think when we're on social media, um, it's really easy just to be the person who's criticizing and not the person who's thinking, how can I build relationships with my neighbors who may have voted um, for Donald Trump or if they or or who still find things attractive about them? And I think that's the challenge we all we all have, even if we think that um, the people who committed crimes here need to be held accountable. And I do think that we also need to turn our attention to the future and building the kind of communities that we want to have. How much of the responsibility for those actions you just went through a very partial litany of, of Donald Trump's and, you know, obviously the the rioters on, on January 6th, how much of the responsibility for that transfers to their their passive supporters? And, and before you answer, I want to reference uh, the philosopher Robert Paul Wolf, who you include in the book, the philosophical anarchist from, um, from Harvard. He says that uh, kids have responsibility in proportion to their capacity to reason. And that jumped out at me because I think we are witnessing an epistemic crisis in this country where a good chunk of the population, given the information input that they are limited to, have lost the capacity to reason. Are they responsible when they believe in the big lie, for example, if that's all they hear? Yeah. So it's interesting you put it that way, lost the capacity to reason. I think that... um I would describe the base of the problem differently. You use the word epistemic, right? Um, and, you know, philosophers talk a lot about echo chambers and epistemic bubbles, right? So, and a lot of people conflate those terms, but like they've, they've got like different technical, they're different technical ideas. So let's just think about what they are. An epistemic bubble is, you're in an epistemic bubble where you don't encounter contrary views, right? So 
you know, if all you ever look at is, you know, like sort of one source of information that's presenting like a consistent um, set of ideas, then you're in an epistemic bubble. And actually, I use families as an instance of, of epistemic bubbles. In relation to the tooth fairy, when my kids were little, they lived in an epistemic bubble, right? They, um, you know, they encountered only one source of information, their parents who were, you know, presenting the tooth fairy as if she was real. Um, but then it turns out epistemic bubbles are super easy to pop. My youngest son, Hank, uh, talked to a friend of his who told him the tooth fairy was not real even before he'd lost any teeth. And, uh, you know, so now he was able to consider the alternative possibility um, that the tooth fairy wasn't real. Echo chambers are, I think, much more dangerous than epistemic bubbles because I think most of us in the world still encounter people that disagree with us. I think even if you watch a lot of Fox News, um, you're aware of alternative ideas, right? So you're not purely in a bubble, right? But uh, the echo chamber idea is that if you are in an epistemic environment where contrary sources of information are constantly undermined, you're taught not to think of them as trustworthy, right? Then you're apt to become very dismissive of them, right? And so this is the idea that people try to capture by talking about echo chambers. I think of like Rush Limbaugh as having been like maybe like the most effective creator of an echo chamber in our recent history, right? That um, he painted this picture of the world in which people that disagreed with him about anything were corrupt and out to get him. They weren't just people that maybe assessed the evidence differently or had encountered different evidence. There was something wrong with them. And I think a lot of Americans do live in echo chambers um, where they're not open to considering ideas that don't come from their preferred sources of information because they've come to think that, say, the mainstream media or public health officials or whatever it is are corrupt and out to get them. And I think that's a real problem. And I suppose, actually, as I've talked about it, I'm coming around to your to your way of thinking that this is not just an epistemic problem. It's, it's a kind of like debasing of your ability to reason because it's leading you to immediately discount evidence that has value. And so I think it's really important in um, in parenting, for instance, to think about not shielding your kids from information and not teaching them automatically just to distrust it, but teaching them how to evaluate it, right? So I teach my kids, like when you're thinking about a news source, right, ask, are these people trying to outrage me? Or are they trying to inform me and let me draw my own judgments? I think that's like a key question. Another question to ask is, if they learned that they were wrong, do I think they'd tell me? right? Like for newspapers, that might be like, do they publish corrections, right? I've got actually a lot of, like, it's not that I think that, you know, like mainstream news organizations, that the people involved with them never have their own political biases. But I think they adhere to very strong norms that if they discover one of their stories is incorrect, they retract it. And that helps me um, trust the information that I'm getting from them. And then there's other organizations, you know, Newsmax that I know don't operate like that. Right. So I want my kids to learn not just New York Times good, Newsmax bad, but the reasons underlying those assessments and be able to apply them themselves. Well, I have a million more philosophical questions, uh, but we're running out of time. And I have to ask, you clerked for Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her loss has radically transformed the court. Did you see this coming? What did you feel when you got word? I imagine you you heard before most of us that she wasn't going to make it. Yeah, it's devastating. It's devastating for me personally because um, uh, she played a big role in my life and I admired her 
immensely, but absolutely it's been devastating for our country in a different sort of way because, um, you know, Justice Barrett replaced her on the court. Donald Trump got to pick her successor. And I think we're all experiencing a bit of whiplash at just how how dramatically the direction of the court has shifted. It's certainly the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe and and took away people's rights to make decisions about um, about whether to have the children, and but 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 a litany of other decisions about prayer in school and concealed carry of guns, and you know like even decisions that didn't attract as much attention represented dramatic shifts in the law. Say the relations of tribal governments to state governments. And um, I think people are only just starting to glimpse how differently this majority of the Supreme Court, what, what a different vision they have for our country. And I think it's going to unfold um, over the next few years. And I think a lot of people aren't going to like the direction, the direction that it's headed. And I hope that the Dobbs decision is enough that people um, they see what's headed our way, what's, what's already gotten here is bad, and there's more to come, and that they take that as, uh, as an impetus to get out and vote. Because, you know, I, I think that um, the people on the right have long been keyed into the fundamental role the Supreme Court plays in shaping the law in the United States and deciding what our constitutional rights are, and people on the left are only just becoming um, aware of its significance and the need to prioritize that when deciding when deciding how to vote. Not just people on the right and left, but like you know, people in the middle um, who had thought, "Oh, my daughter will be able to um, make her own decisions about whether whether she wants to be pregnant," and are realizing that's not the vision that the Supreme Court has for our lives. Well, you probably saw that that intention on the right at Yale Law School. I certainly did the decades long project to reshape the bench, you know, starting uh, by grooming, (laughs) it's a loaded word, but it applies here, Um, right-wing judges to take those seats when the opportunities came. Yeah, it's, you know, um, look, I I don't think it's a great thing about American democracy that the nine justices wield this control over our lives. And I think we should take some steps to reduce the power that they have over our lives and to reduce the significance that any one justice happens to play. So, like, you know, there's a lot of talk lately about court packing, right, which is, a you know, already a dismissive term for the idea that we might expand the number of justices. And some people say, oh, look, here's how we could restore the vision of of law that, um, you know, in some ways prevailed up until this most recent shift, we could add two justices to the court. And people are especially keen maybe to do that um, because they see Justice Gorsuch as having gotten on the court illicitly when Justice Garland was denied a vote by the Senate Republicans. And I think that some good could come out of that. People worry that you'd end up in a kind of tit-for-tat situation, that when Republicans had power, they would expand the court um, you know, in response. And I do think that's a legitimate worry that we would just end up in this escalating cycle. I actually have a court plan um, that would be much more radical. I don't think we should have nine justices or 11 or 13. I think we should have like 45 of them. And they should hear cases in panels so that we never know which nine justices are going to be deciding cases. And so that they have to coordinate across the different randomly randomly selected panels that might be selected so that they start to treat this as 
more of a legal exercise and I think less of a political exercise is one upshot. It would make them more like the courts of appeals that never know which three judges, say, on the Ninth Circuit are going to hear a case, right? So they've, like, the 30-some-odd of them have got to work more together to create law that's going to be applied consistently. And then also, if there were 45 of them, we wouldn't know their names. Um, at least, like, all, like only people in law school would know their names. We wouldn't be obsessed with their with their views. And importantly, it wouldn't matter so much who died when and who decided to retire because one person couldn't make that big a difference. So I think people are sometimes thinking too small about the reform that we need. We need to take some steps. And there are others we could um, take some decision-making power away from the court. That might be good. But I think that diminishing the role that individual justices play in our lives is probably something we ought to pursue. I like it. Although 45 is a cursed number at this point, so maybe 47. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize. Yeah. <laughs> uh, last question, and it's it's more of a plug. Uh, I just discovered your Twitter feed. It's fantastic. But the banner has a British edition of the book, what did they yeah. What did they change? How was how British the British uh, philosophy reading oh, audience different? I thought they might change like the spelling of words, that color might have a U in it. But I think they decided that that was too expensive and the British audience understands that anyway. So the only thing that's different is the cover and the title. So in America, it's called Nasty British and Short Adventures in Philosophy with My Kids. And in the British edition, it's called Nasty Bruce and Short Adventures in Philosophy with Kids. And I'm not sure wh- whether that one word, my, uh, deserved the uh, like all the back and forth arguments that we had on both sides of the pond of whether it belonged there or whether it didn't. But you'll get the same book either way. Uh, so you can pick the cover that you like or, uh, or just the country that you're in for ordering. Awesome. Well, Scott, it's been great having you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Super fun to be here. Thanks again to Scott for joining me. Make sure to check out his book, Nasty, Brutish, and Short. The link is in the show description. You can find Scott on Twitter at S. Hershevitz. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place. The sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work, and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.
This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.